doesn't come from my research alone, but it comes from 30 or 40 years of studies of older parent adult child relationship. And the easiest way to sum that up is that even though adult children love their parents, parents care more about the relationship. Structurally, parents care more than your adult children do. And this actually has a name in sociology called the intergenerational stake. It's that parents have invested both emotionally and economically in their children. And they want, because of that, an emotional return on that investment. Adult children have a totally different life task. They have to create independence. They have to move beyond their family. It is simply easier for an adult child to take a break from the relationship. Hello, everyone. I'm Denise Gorin. Welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Thanks for joining us as we speak with experts, authors, parents, and even young adults to explore the transition from parenting our young children to building healthy relationships with our now adults. Hopefully we'll grow together, learn about ourselves, our young adults, and of course, when to bite our tongues. We are so happy you're with us, so let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us on this new episode of Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. We're going to get right into today's episode because it's a good one. But, you know, I can't not remind you to support the podcast. Remember, it's all on our website, biteyourtonguepodcast.com. We will be eternally grateful. We have a great topic and a great guest today. But I also want to introduce you to my guest hosts. Ellen is in Prague, and we weren't able to coordinate the time. So I invited a listener. That's right, a listener to join me as the guest host today. Her name is Stacy Lovato. She reached out to us after we dropped the episode on understanding LGBTQ. She wrote such a heartwarming email and the two of us connected. Then I learned that Stacy produces her own podcast called Mindful Mama Conversations. I listened to a few and I liked her topics and her style. So I asked her to join me. Welcome, Stacy. Thank you so much, Denise, for asking me to be a guest host with you today. It's an exciting topic, and I know my listeners and the Bite Your Tongue listeners will find it very helpful. Well, I'm glad you're here. This is an episode we've wanted to do since we launched the podcast. So many people said to me, do you want to start off with something so absurd and maybe so many people won't relate to? So I put it on the back burner. As we've continued, we learned that this topic is not absurd. And it is happening more than we know with so many people. What is the topic? Family estrangement. When adult children literally cut themselves off from their parents. We found lots of articles on the web. And there's actually a book called Divorcing a Parent. Free yourself from your past and live in the life you've always wanted. The statistics are alarming and we'll get to that. But today we're talking to a real expert in this area. Stacy, why don't you introduce our guest? Okay, I'd love to. Um, We're pleased to welcome Dr. Carl Pillimer today, a professor of human development at Cornell. And he wrote an interesting book called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. And Carl, I've listened to a few of your other interviews. And what stuck out to me is that you came to writing this book, Fault Lines, from interviewing older couples and that a large regret they had in their lives, many of them that you found a common regret was that they were estranged from family members at some point during that time. And that was something you wanted to delve into a little bit more. So because this is the Bite Your Tongue podcast, and I also work with families and parents, I'm a conscious parenting coach. So I think Denise and I are both thinking, how do we avoid estrangement with our own children, maybe talking about that relationship a little bit, but we're really happy to have you, and I'm so happy to have been asked to be the guest host today. So welcome, Carl, and I think we'll just get going with some questions and figure out more about how to reconcile these estrangements. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here, and I love the idea of the podcast. It's an area that's very close to my heart. Uh, And it's true that I got into this topic in a little bit of an unusual way. I was primed for it, so to speak, because I've spent a lot of my career as a family sociologist 
studying what you might call the dark side of families. So I had studied things like elder mistreatment, problems of caregiving. We have an extensive program of studies on parental favoritism between older parents and their adult children. But I didn't come to estrangement quite that way. I was doing a, a book on a totally different topic, looking at the life wisdom of older people and what they can teach young people about growing older. And I asked them the question, as you look back over your 80, 90, 100 years, what do you regret and how can young people avoid having regrets? I expected for that big ticket items like an affair or a bad business deal. And I wasn't prepared for people's greatest regret in, in quite a few cases being an unresolved estrangement. So people became more emotional on that topic than any other one. If they had especially a, an adult child who they were estranged from, because you really want your kids around you towards the end of your life, but also from their siblings or even from one of their own parents. So that was what really brought me into this. I saw among older people, the amount of distress that emerged from an estrangement. And that led me to want to look at how extensive are estrangements, what causes them, what are their effects, and what can people do to prevent them or deal with them when they occur. So I know that when you've been interviewed before, you've talked about some of the statistics. I'm sort of surprised by this. And also, I read online in a BBC article that you were quoted in that this whole parent-child breakup is on the rise in Western countries. Why is that? What are some of the statistics? And why do you think this is happening? I mean, to me, this sounds, it would be my biggest regret for sure. Let's put it that way. That's a great question. And, you know, it has a slightly complex answer. One of the issues is that we honestly don't know if estrangement is increasing or not. So we certainly have plenty of recorded examples of estrangement throughout recorded history, both of the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament with, you know, the famous story of the prodigal son. Themes of estrangement in families have existed for about as long as people have written about families. There is a suspicion or a thought, though, that estrangement is increasing, largely because norms that held families together, no matter what, uh, have weakened. And we'll come back to this, I hope. But younger people in particular, from their 40s on down, are, are less likely to hold to blood is thicker than water. And if a relationship is very aversive, unlike my generation, or I think my parents' generation, where you stuck together and didn't think about cutting off the relationship entirely, Younger people in contemporary society, even though they love their parents or their siblings, find it easier to say, I'm going to take a break from this relationship for a while. In terms of sheer numbers, however, we did a representative national survey of the U.S. population. And I was really curious, is estrangement hype? Is it, you know, you read about Prince Harry and Prince William or, uh, you know, Angelina Jolie? is this just something that the media are creating as an epidemic? And we found in our study uh, that a little over one in four Americans reports being estranged from a close relative. And in most of those cases, not all, but in most of those cases, it's not just a trivial estrangement. People find it at least to some degree upsetting. So numbers don't always speak for themselves, but in this case, they really do stand out that estrangements occur in many families, it's probably a rare family that has never experienced at least a temporary estrangement from someone. So I think it's a quite an extensive problem. And what's really surprising about it is how little solutions have been created, how little clinical literature there is, how even little um, self-help guidance there is for people. So it's a big problem. And so far, with not a lot of evidence-based approaches to how people should deal with it. You know, it's interesting. It's very similar to building healthy relationships with adult children. Everyone's struggling with it, but no one's talking about it. However, this is much more significant. Stacy, I want you to pop in whenever you want to. I'm going to ask this one more question, and I really want you to... Um... And Denisa, could I pop in with one, uh, yes, with one quick thing? Yeah. The one thing we have to remember, though, though, when we talk about these relationships with adult children, is that there is an on the one hand and on the other hand 
On the one hand, there are these problems. On the other hand, surveys persistently show us that most adult children have pretty good relationships with their parents. So the vast majority in any survey we sociologists do, at least three quarters, probably four fifths, describe their relationships with their parents as at least relatively close and reasonably free from conflict. So we've got a situation where it's not terrible for most people. And in most cases, or in the majority of cases, there's a good flow of support between adult children and their parents. And the conflicts and difficulties are relatively routine and can be resolved on their own. However, it's on the other hand, as they say, there's this chunk of older parent adult child relationships that are really problematic and distressing for people. But I don't want to depress your listeners. It's <laughs> more the norm to have a pretty good relationship with your adult child. This may change over time. So it's not like everybody should go off and bemoan that these relationships are going to be awful no matter what. I just want people to keep that balance in mind. I'm going to talk about these relationships where things go really wrong. It's not the norm. No, and I agree with that. And I think our listeners understand and agree with that. And that's why our podcast is building healthy relationships. I think us as parents want stronger relationships with our adult children than our parents did. But this situation of estrangement is that small percentage. And when I see it happening around me, so, you know, I, I thought it was much more rare than I think it is. And what I want to put aside is the really severe situations of abuse or people being raised with both either emotional or whatever abuse. I want to talk really about the situations that you talk about. And let's get to that. What are some of the reasons? You you say one big event usually makes it happen. You talk about hostility between spouses, in-laws, unmet expectations. What are some of the things that you think cause this estrangement with young adults and their parents? If a researcher could say exactly what causes a problem as conflict, <laughs> as complex as estrangement, we'd probably win whatever the equivalent of a Nobel Prize is for sociologists. But the one thing we did was to talk about pathways. So what are common ways that people come to the same endpoint? Some points are in common among most estrangements, and those include a breakdown in communication over time. I would characterize it as a cascade of negative events which escalate to the point, as marriage and family therapists sometimes also talk about, there's contempt and then stonewalling. So it's that stonewalling that affects parents so greatly. Even though there's been problems when the adult child says, I'm incapable of carrying on this relationship anymore, I don't want to see or hear from you again, it often comes as a real shock. Uh, and the other piece of which you mentioned was this, uh, the ubiquity, or not quite ubiquity, but the very great frequency in our studies of a signature event that everybody involved points to, a turning point, a relational transition that everybody would like to walk back from if they could. And let me come back to that in a second. One point I'd like to make that, that you touched on is critical. There are some situations in which the relationship has been abusive, either emotionally or physically or sexually, where the person from whom an individual is estranged is emotionally, physically, or otherwise damaging or dangerous. My book has been interpreted as encouraging everybody to try to reconcile. And that's not at all what our research shows. There are people for whom reconciliation probably isn't possible, and the only way they should attempt it is with the guidance of a professional. In my studies, some people who had extremely adverse childhood, as bad as people who never reconciled, did eventually reconcile in some way, but they did so with an immense amount of work and support and help. So I don't want anything I say to be interpreted as everybody should reconcile. But I talked to over 100 people who did and were really happy about it. In terms of causes, there are these common points, poor communication that often erupts in a cascade, a signature event, and we know from scientific research uh, that our relationships don't always progress in linear fashion. I'll give you the example. You've loved, a you've loved a restaurant for 20 years, and then you have a really bad meal and you get food poisoning. You reinterpret all the experiences you've had at that restaurant through this negative event. That's true with how we are as customers, and how we are in our friendships. So if a friend makes 
who you've loved for years makes a racist joke, for example, it you then begin to reinterpret the whole relationship in light of that one event. That was an important finding of our study, that these events do matter. And a very critical thing that people advise is that some kind of first aid after the event, rather than letting them go on. So those are points in common. What do you mean by first aid? The restaurant gives you a gift certificate to another meal. You know, what happened? What first aid after that? Immediately getting therapy? What do you mean by that? When I asked people who would tell me that when someone would tell me things like this, and these are typical, my husband was overlooked in terms of giving a toast at my daughter's wedding. I was so upset at that that we left and we haven't spoken for three years. Or I was supposed to get the grandfather clock and my my grandfather had promised it to me. My father gave it to someone else. I asked my sister to give it back to me, and she said no, and we haven't spoken in three years. Those events can be dealt with right after much more easily than a year or two years. What happens is people ruminate. They become defensive. They recast the entire relationship in a new narrative. Critically, they start to talk to other family members or their friends all of whom reinforce how awful this relative was. How can you stand to have anything to do with them? So over and over, people said, when I asked, how could you prevent your estrangement? They would say, really, for my estrangement, I need a time machine. I would have, if this was a big fight over a will, gotten a mediator. I would have, if this was another kind of conflict, brought in a pastor or a trusted friend, someone who could help us through it. Many people who avoided estrangements found that when that signature event occurs, that moment where you're about to say, that's it, I'm done, it's recontacting and regrouping and talking about it. Most important for that signature event, though, and we could go into this later if you'd like to, is people who succeeded through it or who reconciled after it went back and looked at what that event meant. They looked back and found. What were the real antecedents? I'll give you one example. In the book, uh, there was a mother whose adult son came home to live with her. He'd had some troubles, but was doing better. And he asked her to drive him into town because his car wasn't working. And she said no. He became infuriated, left, and they didn't speak for, for several years. She went back through therapy and looked at that event and realized her level of overprotectiveness. She looked at that event and was able to track back that it was a culmination of her worry about him and essentially driving him insane because she was worried he'd go into town and do drugs with his friends. She had created this whole bubble of anxiety. By looking at the event, she was able to progress back through it, make a truly sincere apology and show her understanding of what had led to it. And that led to a reconciliation. So events can be useful if people intervene in them quickly after them or use them as a window, as a key into the origins of the estrangement and act on it after they understand it better. Yeah, I, it's it's ringing up the point, obviously, that when, when these events happen in estrangements, it does give us a chance to maybe do some work that could have been done sooner, but we're given the opportunity at that time. So I just want to reinforce what you're saying is sometimes you just got to address it right then and there. Like, let's either talk about it or then decide we're going to figure out how we're going to talk about it now and get through it. Absolutely. I want to ask something as, as an outsider who isn't dealing with this, these sound so trivial to me. I can't even tell you. I'm sort of in shock at the situations that you're bringing up that have caused estrangement for years. So I do want to get to the narrative part and each person having their own narrative. Uh, yeah, let me say this first, because I think it is really important for, for this podcast. One of the things that parents of adult children really forget doesn't come from my research alone, but it comes from 30 or 40 years of studies of older parent-adult-child relationship. And the easiest way to sum that up is that even though adult children love their parents, parents care more about the relationship. Structurally, parents care more than your adult children do. And this actually has a name in sociology called the intergenerational stake. It's that parents have invested both emotionally and economically, in their children. And they want, because of that, an emotional return on that investment. 
Adult children have a totally different life task. They have to create independence. They have to move beyond their family. It is simply easier for an adult child to take a break from the relationship because their investment in it is lower. So if you look at studies that have looked at older parents and adult children in the same family, literally for 50 years, if you ask how important is this relationship to you, how valuable is it, how, how critical is it to your well-being, on average, parents rate all of those much higher than their adult children do because they have an, a stake in the relationship. One of the findings from our study for parents is be careful what you do and what you say. Bite your tongue. <laughs> As your podcast says, you know, parents who drew that line in the sand about their how their kid was raising their grandchildren or how, you know, the new partner in the family or the kid's political or religious beliefs didn't realize that the kid could exit because it's so hard for us to think of exiting. So this is some, some of these things can't be easily repaired. And older parents do need to tread cautiously and decide, is this the moment? If, is it worth it to really have this knockdown, drag out conflict of it with my child? Because the child does not have the same level of investment in the relationship. They have some, it's just imbalanced. So that's where this narrative idea comes in. If I could actually move to your, your question. I just want to say, and I'm sure Stacy feels the same way, echo this, Stacy. What you just said is so important and so real. And I just want to ask you one question to it, because I think about my own life. When you're young, you're only concerned about building your own life. You have respect for your parents. You love your parents, but they can get in the way as you're building your own life. When they die, you start going through. It's almost like the, the relationship becomes better or stronger to you in your life when your parents die. That is so interesting. I would, I think that's true. I think also what, what, what happens is the relationships tend to improve as adult children acquire statuses that are similar to their parents. Yes. As long as they follow that same path. Again, yeah. you know, if one of them becomes a born again Christian and the, and the family was Jewish, I don't care how established the adult child is, the parents are going to struggle with that. Right. That is the question. Somebody marries outside the faith. In general, when I talk to people about it and in the book, is this taking the long view? Like over the years, in your 70s, 80s and beyond, these kinds of differences aren't going to be as important and you're going to want to have your children typically around you. So I think people really have to do a cost-benefit analysis of what is more important. I think another issue that comes up is going along with the boundaries that your adult children set. So that's one of the hardest things and, and a cause of estrangement. I wanted to come back to your, uh, your narratives idea because I think it's so important. I based part of our research and the, the discussion in the book, Fault Lines, on what we know from narrative psychology, how important these personal narratives are about the events in our lives and how extremely difficult it is for any of us to give them up. So if it's why one of the major recommendations in the book around reconciliation is that most of the 100 plus people who I interviewed who had reconciled but with a relative after one, 10, 20 years, gave up the attempt to align their path. They really let the past be. Uh, one of them might've wanted to process it, but very rarely did these long-term estrangements resolve through coming together and sitting down and agreeing what our divergent views of the past were like. So if I were to take siblings as an example, if Tim believes that his brother, John, was a sadist when they were growing up, and John believes he was doing harmless teasing, They've had so long to live with those narratives that no one's going to impose theirs on the other. Uh, similarly, in the book, I had a great experience, a fascinating one, where I went with a family with two siblings who had not been together with their mother for 25 years. So it was the first time that the family had all been together and the son hadn't spoken to her in 25 years. And I interviewed them separately and then observed the family together. Her husband had been a drug addict. He'd left the family. She found somebody to marry who could provide for them. They were going to be destitute otherwise. 
And she just made sure her kids had the, what, you know, all the accoutrements of a childhood. For her son, the stepfather was borderline abusive. The mother abdicated her responsibility, left them in the hands of an emotionally abusive stepfather, and lived sort of a narcissistic life. When they came back together again, there was no way those narratives of the past were ever going to align. Even an apology wouldn't be enough because you're apologizing for the person's entire childhood. So these narratives, people do have to examine their own narratives of what went on and be prepared, especially after decades, to put them aside and go beyond them. And I'm curious what Stacy might think. I mean, I, you know, I'm not sure. This is a major stumbling block if somebody will not come back into the relationship unless there is a full-blown apology, not not just for the whole childhood, but for the entire person that the parent was or child was. So it's challenging to get beyond the power of these narratives. And people usually wind up saying, you know, I'll give this up for now to have a future relationship. Yeah, at times it, it does sound to me like you're, you maybe have to give it up a little bit. You may have to accept that that's where somebody else was at the time. I keep going back to this idea of connection over correction. If we want connection, we may not be able to correct what we see needed to be corrected. Yet, as you're saying, everyone comes with their own view of things. If you can't resolve, if you can't reconcile past that, You've talked about it in the book too. You have to live with that. Live with what that was going to be. I am. I am absolutely loving connection over correction. Well, I I teach that to parents for young yeah. kids, and now I'm realizing as my kids become adults that that's still the truth. As Denise pointed out, which the, the point you made earlier that Denise already said was so profound, they are trying to live their own lives. And the connection I want with them is probably not the connection they want with me. And I have to be aware of that. And I think sometimes that's when the the lines get um, messy a little bit when we're wanting something, because one of the best lines in your book is the expectations or disappointments waiting to happen. (laughs) And that is just stuck with me because that's so true. It's hard work. (laughs) Well, also, I I wonder if you find this in your work, you know, the concept of no one is a mind reader. I really do think that parents and their adult children can help to estrangement proof their relationship through more open discussion of these expectations. You know, there were many occasions of this, like in the book, there was a situation of a couple had had a new baby and the parents were very traditional and they planned to kind of move in for a while. And the couple said, no, you're staying in a hotel. This is just too much for us. And they refused to go and didn't see their first grandchild. That could have been diffused by during the pregnancy. Hey, what do we all, you know, think about this? The what are you expecting? I think I can say we're actually going to help care for a new arrival that's going to come in our family later on. And we're going to spend some time there. But we're talking about it a lot, you know. Who will look after the dog while we're there, you know, and what are you expecting for us? And if we're there during the day, you know, how do we feel about weekend? Like, so you can go out. It's the problem of these unspoken assumptions and assuming that your relative just knows you so well that I think, you know, leads to this cascade of problems. You know, the same thing is true, but with wills and inheritance, which we found were a remarkably potent source of estrangement. Over and over, we saw situations, and I've been working with some business groups on this, where there's a family business to be inherited, and the patriarch or matriarch or both don't tell any of the kids how it's going to be distributed, or they tell one of them, and the rest of the family's in the dark. The, you know, the transparency in things like being, uh, how are things fair? How are people treated equally is enormous in preventing estrangements, especially the ones that occur around distribution of resources. So I think you're right. People just have to open up lines of communications about things that everybody believes they can take for granted. I want to say two things. One, before you visit your new grandchild, you have to listen to our episode on grandparenting. It's so good. And she basically says, you are the loving and loyal servant, meaning you stand back and you do whatever they tell you to do. You're right on course. Second, what you're talking about in terms of family business and wills and estates, succession comes to my mind, the show where everyone's estranged from everyone. But anyway, what what I really want to ask here is, I'm going to give two situations, but first I'm going to ask something. 
I wonder if therapy, you know, therapy is so important and I'm not putting down therapy, but it's always the parents. The kid comes with a problem. How much do you think it is the therapist saying, you know what, you're going to be better off if you take a break from your parents. It looks like your parents are causing you a lot of emotional issues right now. Why don't you cut them off for a while? How much is that playing into it now where it's sort of almost, I don't want to use the word narcissistic, but I'm using it where, you know, it's like, I'm right. Therapist is only hearing my view. What role might that play in it? We don't have research on that. I will say my own impression from having talked to a lot of people and family therapists about it is there is something of a tendency in that direction for people who go to their individual therapist who are experiencing a lot of upset about the relationship. I think that there is a tendency for some therapists to really side with the adult child and to encourage this this break. One of the kinds of therapy that I think is most effective around estrangements is something called Bowen, B-O-W-E-N theory, or uh, Bowen family therapy. Uh, The originator of that, the Murray Bowen, is one of the few prominent people in family therapy who focused on what they called emotional cutoff and real cutoff and physical cutoff and really helped people through it. Their perspective is that, again, it, you know, in a dangerous, abusive other situation, that's something else. Uh, but in a situation where an estrangement has been called just caused just by interpersonal difficulties, their view is that staying in some kind of contact is typically better. Um, it allows you to process the relationship. It allows you to grow through it. So folks who are looking at this kind of thing might do well to seek out a Bowen therapist or somebody with that orientation. We did do a survey of 60 family therapists about how they approach estrangement. And what was remarkable is many of them do throw up their hands. Their major barrier that they perceive is the inability to get both parent and child into the same therapy session. And why is that? Why, why, why? This is sort of a big question of why, you know, well, Um, It's typically difficult to get the adult child into the room uh, with the parent after this has gone on for a long time. It really does just harden and an inertia factor does tend to set in. One problem from the parent side that we found again and again in our interviews is what we call this kind of defensive wall that parents set up. One thing that we know from decades of psychological research is that One of the most painful things and stressful events human experience is outright rejection. Um, And when we're rejected, a common response, and this isn't like psychobabble, this is from, you know, actual research, people become very defensive and they become so defensive that it protects their integrity, but it makes it impossible for them to see what's going on in the relationship. So over and over and over, I talk to parents and this I won't say always, but it occurred a remarkable number of times. We'd begin an in-depth interview with, what do you think caused this estrangement? And the parent would say, I have no idea. I have no idea why this occurred. Really, it's just baffling. Over the course of the interview, they would describe persistent conflicts, not liking their son-in-law, let's say, and criticizing him, having gone on Facebook, criticized their child's lifestyle choices. They would list every problem in the relationship. And I got to the point where I would say, I would openly say, boy, hearing this, it sounds like you got a lot of messages. And the person would pause and say, I just don't know why this occurred. And that's because the level of defensiveness in the face of rejection is so high. That's why I think therapy does really help people on the parent side, very often for parents, there is a history of difficulties, even to the point of the child writing them a letter or being explicit that they can't process, you know, that is too difficult for them to hear. Very often in the reconciliations, the parent was able through therapy or through self-examination to see what the adult child was saying and to make a legitimate apology and expression of understanding. Often the parents that they would say something like, like a very common line is, I'll apologize for anything. All they have to do is tell me what I have to apologize for. Well, that shows a lack of any understanding of where the adult child is coming from. And a forced apology isn't really an apology. So I think that's one of the major barriers is that this level of um, 
you know, sort of a defensive wall being built up keeps parents from seeing what the adult child is saying. Why people won't come into family therapy is a challenging question. Sometimes adult children do. I profile one case in the book that was really, really successful. But it's not that there are a lot of family therapists out there who specialize in this issue and who you can go to for for help in this. Um, But very often they, you know, for example, I say in the book, the huge encyclopedia of family therapy doesn't have family estrangement in the index. And we and we've heard that about adult parents. Someone has said that exact thing. I think the guy from the Society of Emerging Adults. Go ahead. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I think so. 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 It's a question. You know, the one thing I, you know, believe from our studies, what can be more helpful in some cases is actually mediation. Mm. So remember, we have these different types of estrangements. So we have some that come from these harsh parenting, extremely difficult childhoods early parental divorce where a parent has dropped out of the picture. There are those kinds of situations that won't be helped by mediation, but there are many estrangements that occur in more situational ways, like these problems with family businesses, property, problems with in-laws. Mediators can really help. And many people said that when there was a conflict over, say, what was going to be done with the family summer house, they really wish they had brought in a family mediator who would have met with everybody. So I think that's an important thing for people to think of, that there are mediation resources in most communities, and that if your problem fits, is really these emotional issues are circling around events or decisions. Mediation can be a very powerful tool to either get back together or to help with an estrangement. While you were talking, I was imagining two people in their own little silos with their therapists agreeing with them. Do you know what I mean? And it's hard then to break out of those silos and come together. But I know I have heard several times, I've talked to parents who are willing to completely apologize, give up their narrative, and the child isn't willing to budge. But what I want to really ask about is how, particularly in divorce situations, and I've seen this a couple of times, where one parent sort of turns the kids against the other parent, like you don't want any more relationship with your mother or your father or whatever. How often is that? You know, there, there's certainly the case that, you know, parental divorce and childhood period that we found would be called like a risk factor for estrangement, especially true for men, because they're more likely like not to have custody. They often develop other relationships and other families more quickly. So in general, you can be on alert for an estrangement possibility with divorce, even if, of course, sometimes it's, it's really good for the children to have it occur. And yes, there is some of that alienation. We didn't study it specifically. And as you folks probably know, there's a big literature on that around how parents may alienate children from another parent and other problems inherent in that. So I think that is a piece of it. You know, the other piece, and this actually relates to the question of divorce, is the influence of other people so that other family members can get in the way or can promote estrangement or reconciliation. There were a number of cases that there was a divorced dad who had two daughters. Daughter one wanted to reconcile, and daughter two was basically, they were very close to one another. Look, it's him or me. I mean, a daughter two had such negative feelings about her father that it was incomprehensible that people would want to reconcile. What's a parent to do in that situation? It's so challenging. We've got to get to somewhere here. What can a parent do when this is happening? You know, the one sister's telling the other sister, you know, you don't want a relationship with your father. What can a parent do? They're just sitting there sadly trying to figure out how to make this work. We need science to help us on some of these questions. I think that what our studies did and a few other folks working in this area have been the first step. It's to identify the issue because I will tell you, it is extraordinarily difficult for parents whose children are estranged from one another. It is, uh, it's almost as difficult for some of them as it is to have the child be estranged from them, but where they're kind of a mediating between two children who won't speak to one another, uh, who feel that the other one has offended them deeply, and parents can exert a lot of effort. I talked to siblings who did reconcile, you know, it was their mother's deathbed wish, you know, that they would um, somehow learn to live with one another. That's something that long-term intractable 
problems. For some of these issues, like we're talking about, right now, there aren't great solutions. And the question is, how can people adapt to a situation that can't be changed? I tried to look at in our research, what can you do in a permanent estrangement from a child who you still love, for example? And I didn't write about it much in the book because there's not much guidance for what you should do other than treat it like you would a death or some other very negative life event over which you can't control. Work through it, you know, use cognitive behavioral approaches to improve your mood. For some of these situations with long-term estrangements with a child who really is unwilling to have any contact, every card or letter is sent back. If gifts are sent, they're thrown away. I've seen that those relationships reconcile. But from the older parent's perspective, when it's gotten to that point, your only solution may be to work through the grief. I mean, it sounds pessimistic, but there are situations that may not in a parent's lifetime reconcile. And what they need to do in the course of therapy and other work is adjust to that factor. And people do all kinds of things. They get involved in the lives of nieces and nephews and other young people. They invest in the family members with whom they are. They still do have connections. But the other piece of advice which those individuals gave, and I think this is really critical for your listeners who may be in a long-term and seemingly unresolvable estrangement, over and over people said, don't give up. Don't stalk. Don't show up at somebody's door when, you know, we've had to have adult children who've gotten restraining orders against their parents who won't stay away. But keep the doors open. If they will accept a gift to a grandchild, send it. If they'll allow you to friend them on Facebook so you can see their posts, do it. Send cards, send letters, make, uh, make them aware through other family members that they're here and they're ready. There are times when the, the, uh, the adult child reached out. But the responding, and sometimes this occurs, there are estranged parent Facebook groups. And one of the difficulties with those is there's so much anger that the adult children wind up being demonized. There are threads in these groups. You know, they're like a deserters in an army and we shoot deserters, you know, or things like that. They're so negative. Cutting off all possibility of reconciliation from the people we interviewed is a bad idea if you're interested in it. Being open, being clear that you're open, making gestures and making overtures. One relationship reconciled when after many years of no contact, a daughter-in-law who'd kind of initiated the long-term estrangement because the mother-in-law was pretty awful, her own father died and the mother-in-law made a memorial contribution in honor of the father-in-law. And that gesture opened the door for contact because it was a thoughtful gesture that showed the person had changed. So both it's deal, do whatever you need to do to try to get past the grief as best you can, you know, to move on and reinvest in other relationships and leave the door open for reconciliation in every way you can is the best advice. But that's the hardest. The adult child who says, I'm done. You can only throw yourself up against a brick wall for so long. I'm going to add something. And this goes to what Stacy said connection over correction. As this parent keeps trying, if they're on Facebook or whatever, be quiet, bite your tongue, just go along with it. The worst thing that can happen is they're making comments, it seems to me, or because any comment will be construed differently, I think. That's just my opinion. I, I would love to tell an anecdote. I mean, the but one of the signature events was this mother really disapproved of her daughter's lifestyle and spending habits. She put a message that I think was meant just for some other relative. Oh. And it was, you know, this very negative message that appeared on Facebook. But one thing I did want to pop in there, one thing which worked for some older parents was what I call in the book, one last chance. That is, parents often will say to an adult child, I'll do anything and not say what it is. Sometimes a parent can propose, look, I understand now. If I can see my grandchildren once every two months, I will never criticize your husband. My husband won't talk politics. My second husband won't even come because you don't like him. Uh, you know, I'll never stay in your house. You can offer terms rather than an apology. Here, you know, I'll, if, if you really mean, many parents don't mean I'll do anything. 
<laughs> they they actually don't mean I'll do anything. They mean I'll do anything sort of, but I think a parent can offer these very clear terms. Here's what I'm willing to do. And in some cases that made a difference. That makes perfect sense. Yes. Um, and I understand if I'm offered this one last chance, it really is my last chance and I will never be allowed it again. And in some cases for adult children, that really worked, offering that one last chance. It, it, it allowed the relationship to continue. So before we wrap up, I want you to repeat two things. And then we always ask our guests for two takeaways that we want our listeners to listen to. But I want you to mention again, the Bowen therapy. Is it B-O-W-E-N? Is that right? I was exposed in the course of writing the book to a type of family therapy called Bowen therapy. It's named after a psychiatrist named Murray Bowen, B-O-W-E-N, who originated this. And they offer unique help around what they call cutoff or estrangement in families. Uh, They help people to look back at experiences of estrangement in their own life histories. And they help people to process this even in the absence of the other person. It's especially good for the person who originated the estrangement. There is a group called the the Bowen Center in Washington, D.C. They're able to make referrals to people who do Bowen therapy around the country. I had a great meeting, uh, which I describe in the book, uh, with a Bowen theory therapist who helped me understand estrangement in my own family in a past generation that had profound effects and I wasn't even aware of. So that's something I think people really could explore, and there's lots written about it. So Bowen theory family therapy is one of the few that takes on the issue of estrangement, especially useful for someone who has caused an estrangement and is pondering ending it and wants to think about the kind of boundaries they need to set and support. That would be true with any good family therapist, though, too. If you're someone who is estranged and you're the originator of it, talking to a therapist through questions like, what boundaries do I need to set? People talk with their therapist about things as straightforward as this. When I this was from an adult child perspective, when I talk to my mother, my husband is nearby. So he can tell me when I'm beginning to be too upset and I should end the conversation. And and that's been true on the parent side as well, that, you know, you can think of what you need to. Oh, God, I have to say one other thing. I'm sorry. Here's another key thing for parents, though. Key thing for them is this question. If reconciliation might be possible. What's the least I can accept in this relationship? And and, and that's really true for everybody. It's unlikely it's going to be a perfect relationship. What is the least I can accept? To give the example I gave, one woman, this is a true example. Her, Her daughter said, you can come once every few months and see your grandchildren. I never want to see your second husband. I never want to hear him referred to. You can never stay in the house. I don't want you bringing extravagant gifts. She made a whole set of rules and it was worth it. It was the least that person could accept. So that's something parents may be offered something like that. And, you know, you need to think it out. If you can't accept it, you may be stuck where you are. Okay. Oh, dear. All right. Before we end, we always ask our guests to give our listeners two pieces of advice to take away from this episode. What are the two key pieces of advice you would offer to to parents of adult children who might be facing estrangement? My strongest advice is this. If you're offered an opportunity for a last chance to reconcile, take it. And if you're considering offering that last chance to someone, do it. Because I found over and over with 100 plus people who reconciled, it was difficult. It was challenging. It often took outside help, but no one regretted it. And the other highly surprising piece is that most people who reconciled found it a powerful engine for personal growth. They really learned a lot about themselves. So I would say one piece of advice is consider trying it wherever you are in this, because it often works out better, even even an imperfect um, reconciliation. And the second piece is a big picture one. I mean, I think our society has become increasingly divisive, increasingly conflictual. And most of us feel helpless to deal with that. But one thing we can do, maybe, is overcome some of it in our own families. So it's empowering 
if you have a situation like this where no communication is occurring, if you can make communication happen, it helps you feel better about what's going on in your family and to maybe some extent of what's going on in the world. Like some great sage once said, peace in society depends on peace in the family. Now that's not exactly true, but I think that you can create this little pocket of peace by overcoming some of these challenges in your own family. So that's another takeaway is, you know, don't live with these long-term estrangements and conflicts if it's in your power to deal with them. I really love that. Thank you so much for joining us. This was so insightful and probably, and Stacy, you'll agree, one of the easiest interviews I've ever done because you offered so much. And I feel badly, Stacy, co-hosting for the first time, didn't get to ask too much because truly, Dr. Pillemer, you say it all so beautifully. So thank you. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to call you Carl or Dr. Oh, Carl, thank Carl's you. fine. Carl, thank you so much. I can't even tell you the valuable information that you shared with us. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Yeah, very valuable for the Bite Your Tongue listeners. This this goes right along with the themes that Denise has brought to us all along. What drew me in from the beginning, the first time I ever heard Bite Your Tongue. And really happy to be here. And I will I will spread the word, Dr. Pillamar, of, of your advice. <laughs> We are so grateful. Well, it's a pleasure being with you and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Well, that was quite an interview and what a wonderful guest. So filled with knowledge. I really wish we had more time. He had so many interesting things to say and so much for us to understand. Actually, even if we don't suffer from estrangement from our adult children, there's a lot of good research here. Something we didn't mention at the beginning is that in addition to being a professor of human development at Cornell University, he's also on the faculty of Cornell's medical school. And in addition to his book, Fault Lines, he's the author of several other remarkable books about love, relationships, and aging. And I'll link those in our episode notes. I'm also particularly interested in what he talked about in terms of favoritism with your adult children and that sort of thing. We'll have to follow up. Again, thank you all so much for listening. Remember, please follow us on social media and send us ideas for episodes. Send us those ideas to biteyourtonguepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you again to Connie Gorant Fisher, who's our audio engineer. You have absolutely no idea how hard she works to make this sound decent. So thank you so much, Connie. And remember, and this episode really enforced it, sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.